0: Hey guys, I want to thank HelloFresh for sponsoring today's episode. HelloFresh is one of my favorite meal services and you can get 16 free meals plus free shipping when you go to hellofresh.com slash allinsane16. That is hellofresh.com slash allinsane16. 16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. I would also like to thank Nutrafol for sponsoring today's episode. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair supplement brand and is physician formulated with 100% drug-free ingredients. Just go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code insane to save $10 off your first month subscription plus free shipping on every order. Enjoy today's episode.
1: Hi, I'm Hannah. And when I was 25, I went through menopause. Um, And I want to talk about it a little bit chronologically. And I feel like I should say bottom line up front is that everything is really good now. Yeah. Um, But the journey throughout the last year and sort of learning how to live post-menopausally has been a little bit rough. So I'll sort of talk about where my body and my mind and sort of like my headspace was Mm -hmm. throughout the journey as it was then with the peace of mind of knowing that everything is good now right we're doing a lot better good but it really starts with I feel like my reproductive health has sort of plagued me ever since puberty it's just not been a good situation for me I always had really painful periods and Mm -hmm. I went on birth control when I was in high school and it was largely due to just um
0: the cramping and stuff yeah like
1: painful periods not wanting to interfere with sports and stuff I never really had to I know a lot of my friends were going on birth control for things like acne um I didn't really deal with that too much but for me it was mostly just really painful periods my mom always said all the women in our family have really painful periods and that's kind of you know my lot in life basically when I was on birth control in high school it really wasn't working well for me I just like the estrogen was just not sitting well with my body it made Mm. me so nauseous yeah I remember for like the span of a whole year, I would wake up every single morning, I would end up fainting because I was taking my birth control at night and it just did not work for me. Really? Yeah, it was weird. And for a while, we didn't know what was causing that until my yeah. doctor told me, try taking your birth control in the morning. And I realized it was the pill causing me to like overheat in the morning, basically wow. every time I stood up. Yeah, It's
0: interesting. It's it- crazy that like it can do that because I feel like those are the effects, that like the side effects that they don't really talk about from the pill and stuff like that. That's wild. That's yeah, crazy.
1: especially because I think, too, when you're a young woman and you go to the doctor, I mean, they'll give you the birth control pill for anything without right. really telling you too many things about the side effects. So And it
0: affects everybody differently,
1: too. So Yeah. So then I was on and off birth control for most of high school and then throughout most of my undergrad experience in college. I did a two-year undergrad, four-year grad program, and graduated with my PharmD in 2020. I've been practicing pharmacy since then, with most of my background being in long-term care. I switched to retail this year. Um, So working with all the birth controls and stuff is actually kind of new for me. It's been a little bit exciting to be back in the mix with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But everything kind of went to crap a little bit when, I think it was 2020, the year that I graduated from pharmacy school i switched from using the combined birth control estrogen and progesterone to the progestin only mini pill okay and from there i started to have you know like breakthrough bleeding it really just wasn't working for me Mm -hmm. this was right around the time my husband marco and i started dating and i i finally got to the point where i was like if i'm always having breakthrough bleeding and my cramps are getting worse. What's and the point? What's the yeah. point? Yeah. So I went off and I decided to try something different and do the copper IUD instead. And coming off of hormone birth control ended up causing my endometriosis to flare. So this is the first time then in my life that I suddenly was having all of these really intense symptoms. And just with my background, I started thinking, oh, it really seems like I might have been dealing with endometriosis this whole time. And being on and off birth control, the birth control suppresses the symptoms. So switching to a non-hormonal birth control ended up causing this horrible flare-up of symptoms. And then Mm -hmm. I was kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because I really liked the copper IUD. A lot of people find it to be intolerable due to the fact that it can cause more cramping and heavier bleeding in a period. Mm -hmm. But for me, my period was never super heavy bleeding-wise, and the cramps weren't I mean, the cramps were like bad enough. I mean, I guess just nobody likes having cramps. But when I had my first few endometriosis flares, it was like everything else was way worse. Mm -hmm. I was throwing up a ton. I would start throwing up like an entire week before my period even started. And it really was affecting me at work too. Um, I was like having to take breaks to throw up at work and had this horrible abdominal pain that was so different from anything I'd experienced before. It was like from my waist all the way up to under my boobs. It was just so tender, even to the touch. It felt like um, if somebody like brushed their hand across my stomach or I bumped into something, it was excruciating. And it would be like that for like a week and a half to two weeks before my period even started. Wow. Then you have your period, you know, and that's, you know, another few days. Right. It felt like I was just becoming consumed with my reproductive health once again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided to go get evaluated for endometriosis and get surgery. That's usually how they diagnose it for like a clinical diagnosis of endometriosis. A lot of times, um, it can be diagnosed sort of anecdotally based on symptoms and signs, but if you want to get it clinically diagnosed, um, which would be, you know, getting it, um, like a tissue biopsy and getting it identified on a pathology report, you have to have, um, what's called like a laparoscopy. I had a da Vinci laparoscopy. Um, and they went in with a little camera and a little cauterizer biopsied some of the tissue removed some cysts. And, um, after that, my symptoms got better and I never had my period again. So my ovarian failure journey really starts with having that surgery.
0: So after that surgery, did you still have the IUD in, or no?
1: I did, yeah. Okay. So I had the IUD in. I was using that for contraceptive since at that time I was dating my now husband. Right. Um, but like,
0: did they tell you that after that surgery that your period might just stop altogether, or no? Like, no. Okay. So they did weren't they didn't have any idea that that might happen.
1: No, and okay. I've even been assured by most of my doctors since then that this surgery was probably just the final straw mm-hmm. on top of. I guess, what my ovaries could handle. Okay. When I went into the surgery, they told me, um, by that point I'd had some ultrasounds done and they could see that I had cysts on my ovaries and on my fallopian tubes. And I feel like it's worth mentioning that even though I had a lot of cysts, I never was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. Mm -hmm. That's sort of a, a different reproductive disorder that has to do with like an imbalance of your androgens. I never had that i just had a lot of cysts and most of them were endometriomas which are the endometrial tissue um, sort of backflowing out of the uterus through the fallopian tubes and sticking to other parts of the body mine were stuck to my ovaries and my large bowel and um, my abdominal wall and what happens is those pieces of tissue that flow out of the uterus will then respond to estrogen throughout your cycle so the problem becomes that every time you have your period those spots within your abdomen are also bleeding as well as like what's coming out of the vagina. So a lot of the pain in endometriosis comes from inflammation, just from those tissue spots. Got it. Bleeding every month. And that also causes scar tissue adhesions. So one of the really charming symptoms of endometriosis that I struggled with was really bad constipation. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that I had a scar tissue adhesion that was like pulling really strongly on my large bowel, So, thankfully, surgery was able to um, alleviate a lot of my symptoms. But I did have sort of, I think, my first um, preview that there might have been something wrong with my ovaries in my follow up appointment with my surgeon. At the time, I didn't really understand what she was saying or why she was telling me this information. But I went into surgery with the goal of getting a tissue diagnosis so that treatment options would be covered by my insurance. Mm -hmm. They were going to put me on a medication that would effectively put my body into like a medically induced menopause that way um you know the fluctuations in estrogen wouldn't be making my endometriosis symptoms worse month by month it is kind of ironic that i did end up being postmenopausal after the surgery so right. i guess you know like <laughs> in a kind of roundabout way i did achieve that but in my follow up appointment she told me that they were able to biopsy the tissue and it did come back as endometriosis but she made sure to tell me that my ovaries looked rough and that basically as soon as she opened me up, um, my ovaries, I guess, had these endometriomas on them and they sort of like hemorrhaged open and like filled my pelvic floor with blood. And the point of telling me that, I think she was saying that because of that, the biopsies they took of the ovary cysts Mm -hmm. came back is. um, like a ruptured corpus luteum as opposed to being endometriosis. And in my mind, when she was telling me that, I was thinking, well, the other tissue came back as endometriosis. So right. I think we really checked the block. But I think that that was almost her way of saying that my ovaries were in rougher shape. And I think I, I kind of, I think that just went over my head. I just didn't think about it. And after the surgery, they do tell you that your first period will you'll miss it just because the ovaries are, you know, they have to heal after that. Right. I had, Going into surgery, I had two tubal, or like fallopian tubal cysts. I had two cysts on my ovaries that she talked about in the post-op. And then I had a ruptured cyst on ultrasound that they had seen in my pre-op appointment. And so I, you know, I kind of recognized that there was a lot of carnage. The recovery process was kind of tough too. I mean, they do, they blow air into your abdomen to sort of inflate it. Mm-hmm. It's very weird because then you have this extra air floating around in your stomach. Um, yeah. And you have to sort of like walk around and walk it off and the air is moving all around. You can feel it moving, it's really strange. I'm sure. Um, And so then the month passes, you know, I'm just recovering, trying to get the extra air out of my stomach, trying to remember what my body looks like without it being like completely inflated. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was actually on my period the day of my surgery. So it was like, I had my surgery on April 25th. So we get to May 25th, I'm like, okay, not gonna have a period, Mm -hmm. this makes sense. Um, so my period should have come by the end of June, mid June, we actually moved. So by this point I was, um, really only following up via phone and trying to get in with a gynecologist in my area that could just keep up with me and manage the medication that I was supposed to be starting.
0: Um, had you started it yet or not yet?
1: I hadn't started it, but I was enrolled in their program. And so I had a nurse that would call me like every two weeks and be like, Hey, did you start it? Do you have side effects? Every two weeks, I would tell her, I'm sorry, Rhonda, but I don't have my period yet. I'm just waiting on that. Oh, so you would have had to wait to start it until you got your period. Yeah, got they basically okay. told me, just wait till you get your period back. That way we know there's no additional complications. You can start okay. the medicine then. So, you know, we get to June 25th. I am not even feeling like PMS. There's yeah. just nothing in the in – the, there are no signs that I might be having a period coming soon. And I called my surgeon and – Her office prescribed me 10 days of progesterone, um, the goal being to sort of build up your progesterone. Progesterone builds the lining of the uterus, so the way they try to sometimes trigger a period if um, you haven't had a period for a while is they'll give you 10 days and it sort of builds up that endometrial thickness, and Mm -hmm. then when you stop taking it, you have the crash of progesterone causing the endometrial lining to then slough off and you have a period, so... I do the 10 days of the progesterone and I'm just waiting and days one and two come after and I call my doctor again and I'm saying, hey, I I really, it really truly feels like there's nothing going on. Right. By this point, I was having menopausal symptoms. I actually started having hot flashes the day I had my surgery. I remember getting home from surgery and um, the hot flash is so different from what you would imagine it feels like. I think I remember when my mom was going through perimenopause and she started having hot flashes. We would kind of laugh about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and she would get all sweaty and whatever. And uh, the first time I had a hot flash, it feels like this burning heat that just comes from within. And it just felt like my face turned into like a pure heat cannon. It was just like really bursting sweat. Um, And it passes in like two minutes. But then when it passes, it leaves you freezing because you've just then, you know, I started having hot flashes right after surgery and I was having them about every hour and a half.
0: Wow. Like throughout the day.
1: Yeah. Oh, and night too. waking up every hour and a half just to have hot flashes. And so by the time I was supposed to have my period in June, I was really ready. I was like, I can't, I can't keep up with this. I mean, it's hard to have a conversation with a friend and you're just like, all of a sudden you burst into sweat and it's, it's unbearable. And in addition to sweating, which I didn't realize I should have taken hot flashes a lot more seriously. When my mom went through perimenopause, I think it's karma. Mm -hmm. Your blood pressure drops. My heart starts racing. Um, it kind of leaves you winded a little bit. And so the whole experience is just terrible. And then I noticed that my temperature regulation was just completely off. I was basically only ever having hot flashes. And if I was in an environment where I should have been hot, I was just neutral. Mm -hmm. If I should have been cold, I was just neutral. It was pretty much like my temperature regulation was just non-existent except for the hot flashing. Um, And I'm trying to think if by that point, when I started doing the progesterone, trying to get my period back in June, I think the hot flashes were the main symptom. But I also noticed by this time that When I had my surgery, I was able to work out again. Up until then, I was really struggling with my endometriosis symptoms. Um, I had such bad pelvic pain that it was really interfering with my ability to do any kind of workout. Right. So after my surgery, I like really got back after it. But I noticed that my body was just holding fat in different places, different places I wasn't used to, like my stomach, for example. Mm -hmm. And at first I was able to attribute it to, you know, the swelling, like the air that was still in right. my abdomen. And I had some edema after surgery too, that took a long time for it to go away. But after a couple of months, I noticed I'm like, you know, I'm gaining weight like pretty quickly. And I've never, my weight's never really fluctuated like that before. And I was so confused because I was working out again. I was running. Um, I was lifting weights more and, I, it was just different from what I was used to with my body. Yeah. I feel like people kind of generally know what they need to do to do anything to their body, really. Like I know, for example, if I want to like, you know, tone down, I'll run more right. and it'll, you know, I can yeah, get tightened get up do, for summer right? and I generally speaking know what it takes for my body to to change in in any way, but this was just completely different for me and yeah, just like holding fat in places I didn't recognize. And um, it was just so, you know, the opposite of where I was at with my fitness too. So this is like only the first couple of months after my surgery, by the end of, you know, June, I'm just exasperated. I'm like ready for this to be over. Um, I do the 10 day course of progesterone and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. At this point we were, we had just moved. So I was trying to get in to see a gynecologist. um, And I, let's see, I was able to – so that was the end of June. I wasn't able to get into my new gynecologist till the beginning of August. Mm -hmm. So there was just a lot of, um, you know, hurry up and wait with that. So like during that
0: time, you just –
1: it was the same things just happening
0: with the hot flashes and stuff like that. Yeah,
1: I was just gaining weight. I was having hot flashes. I was starting to work again because we had, you know, we had moved. I got a new job. Yeah. I was really having a hard time it's weird to be talking to a patient or giving immunizations and all of a sudden you have a hot flash mm-hmm. and you're young and people don't know why you're sweating and it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence if i'm getting ready to inject someone right like i'm sweating because they red. probably right they're, like, what they're probably mother? like is she nervous like yeah. what is this um, were you
0: were you still in contact with the doctor that did the surgery like did were they concerned that you hadn't gotten your period
1: I was in contact with them and the message I kept getting was, oh, you're so young. Sometimes it takes time. Give it a little bit more time. So they weren't that concerned. Mm-mm. Okay. No, they did pass along the message to the surgeon herself and she just kept encouraging me like, oh, it'll be fine. Just wait it out kind of yeah, thing. Just yeah, just wait, to give it another month. Maybe the progesterone restarted your cycle. Maybe you didn't have the period, but maybe you, you know, restarted mm-hmm. it. And, but I knew like in my heart of hearts, cause there was just nothing going on. I mean, usually, like I said, I was having like nausea and all these other symptoms more than a week before my period. Right. And there was just nothing happening. So I knew I was like in a week from now, I'm not going to mm-hmm. be having a period. I just kind of knew it. So it took a little bit to get into the gynecologist, which was hard. Cause you know, I just felt like. I really can't do anything. I was trying desperately to, yeah, actually, I think during this time, I almost completely cut out alcohol. I was working out a lot more than normal, um, just kind of desperate to see any kind of positive change. I will say, though, worth noting that the surgery really did help with my symptoms so much. I got so much of my life back, mm-hmm. um, just being able to work out, not you know throwing up as much, not having that abdominal pain. Um, it That part was really nice. I yeah. was enjoying that quite a bit. I still am actually. Um, So that's at least good. By the time I had uh, my first gynecology appointment, they decided to do another round of the 10 day progesterone course, which was a little frustrating because it just felt like that takes so long. Um, By this point, you know, when you're having hot flashes every hour and a half and you're losing sleep, it's like, I don't want to wait 10 more days. I'm really ready for this to be solved now. But my gynecologist was pretty urgent. He was like, we're going to do the 10-day course. I already have your follow-up date in case you don't get your period back. And then on that date, we're going to do these, 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 and these labs. Actually, I think they drew the labs the day I went in. And we were going to talk about the labs at the follow-up appointment. Um, And he told me, you know, during this 10 days, if we get your labs back and anything is really wrong, we'll call you. And so that gave me some peace of mind. So throughout the 10 days that I'm waiting for my period to start, at least in the back of my mind, I was like, okay, well, if anything is really crazy, I will, I'll know, I'll know mm-hmm. before 10 days is over. So I go back for my follow-up. This is the middle of August. It's like August 16th. And I go in there and the intake nurse at my gynecologist is really sweet. I was telling her about, you know, all of my gripes and all this edema and all this weight gain. I was telling her, I was holding out the water so much. And she was telling me, girl, you're going to feel so good when we get your period back. It's going to be great. You're going to shed all that water. You're going to be so happy. So I'm sitting in there and I have this sort of naive sense of confidence because he didn't call me and he told me he would if it was right. going to be bad. So he opens the door. Worth saying, too, I really do like my gynecologist. He's a good guy. That said, he opens the door and he goes, we have a major problem with your labs. I was like, "Oh my gosh, what happened to good morning? Right. What happened to hello? Now I'm scared." And so he told me that my labs came back and they all indicated that I was postmenopausal and he told me that I at this point was beyond his scope of care and I needed to be referred to a reproductive endocrinologist um like immediately. And that was it. And he didn't even sit down. And he like stood me up and walked me to the nurse who was going to work on my referral. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just so shell shocked. I mean, the appointment was like three minutes long. Right. And I appreciate his sense of urgency in hindsight because it really was like, okay, you're- He
0: didn't like give any information of what, like, I guess he figured.
1: No, he gave me a printout of the
0: values and which values
1: were high and stuff, um, to indicate that Mm -hmm. I was, had the biological footprint of a menopausal woman. Um, and then that was pretty much it. He like put a hand on my shoulder and said- we're here for you if you need anything. I was like, it sounds like I need a lot of things. Right? <laughs> You're not really offering me anything. Now I'm scared. Yeah. And I could tell the nurse that I had been chatting with, like she was visibly upset. I was like a baby that doesn't know if they're supposed to cry or not. Mm-hmm. I was just so
0: mind blown. And confused too, because I feel like you don't really have any information of like, okay, well, like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Exactly. So. And at this point, I'm still thinking is that
1: permanent right is it reversible yeah yeah like what exactly does this entail really so the nurse starts working on my referral I go on my merry way I happen to this was an early morning appointment and Marco happened to not have been at work yeah he had went in late um I just remember getting home I was like shell-shocked and shaking and Mm -hmm. didn't I just didn't know how to process that I'm like what I mean I don't know I was I was pretty upset at that point thankfully he was home which was nice because I was able to kind of like hemorrhage tears. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel. Should I be panicking? Um, And yeah, I was panicking basically. So at that point I'm thinking, okay, you know, the hot flash, this sort of like flesh prison of sweat that I'm trapped in right now is, uh, there's no end in sight for me. That's a bummer. And um, with the weight gain, I was still gaining weight. I kind of plateaued in weight gain by August. So, I mean, thankfully, that was around that same time. so But I was still really perturbed by it because, once again, I've been running so much. Right. I've been lifting weights. I'm, you know, like cardiovascularly, like doing really well fitness-wise. Not that I had anything to show for it. Um, and I had to just wait for my referral. So I do. And a week goes by. And this is where being a pharmacist, I think, was very helpful in this process because there was so much red tape with just getting a referral um, and I was a little bit just, I guess, familiar with the process a little bit more just by virtue of working in it and was able to help speed that along. So I, um, i even called the place that they referred me to. I was like, Hey, it's been like, you know, three or four days I was supposed to hear back. And they're like, Oh, we, we actually don't accept fax referrals. I was like, well, you, so you received the fax and you didn't accept, could you have called me and right. just told me that or my doctor. So then I had to call the doctor's office and they're like, well, we don't do phone referrals we fax our referrals it just ended up being this like back and forth it took days i finally got my appointment from that clinic um and it was let's see what day i got it i got on august 29th of the year of 2022 i get an appointment notification from the place i'm referred to and they're like we're gonna take such good care of you girl we will see you june 6 2023 And I'm thinking, what? That's, hello? I thought I read it wrong. I was like, no way. This, I mean, because then at that point too, I'm aware. I'm like, if I am in menopause and I want any chance of fertility in the future, I've got to like freeze eggs or something so that I have a fighting chance. So, you know, every day that's passing, I'm like, my eggs could be dying. Um, And they were, but I didn't know that at the time. And so, yeah, I just felt like, I was like, are you serious? Am I a joke to you? (laughs) I mean,
0: June of next year.
1: I was like, I can't go. And also
0: you would think in some way it's like an emergency. Yes. So it's not something just like. Exactly.
1: I mean, they certainly made it seem like an emergency at the gynecologist. So I knew it was urgent and I I was so bummed. So I, once again, thankfully was able to navigate the healthcare system, even though it was difficult. Um, I basically just called around every reproductive endocrinologist that I could find. Um, to try to see one that would take my insurance and mm-hmm. I did find one and during this time when I was waiting for my referral the end of August I decided to get my IUD removed because at that point it was just taking up space right not paying rent or doing anything for me mm-hmm. so got my IUD out got my referral and then needed to find a place that would see me sooner for my own peace of mind especially because I was getting closer and closer to the brink of just simply not being able to do the hot flashes anymore. My tolerance was so like, my patience was worn thin. It was terrible. The place that I ended up finding was able to see me like, I think a week after I called them, thankfully, Um, which was a relief because, and they were really sympathetic on the phone. they were like, can you wait until Tuesday? And I think this was like a Wednesday I called them. I was like, I can wait till Tuesday. Thank you. Better than waiting a whole year. Yeah, seriously. And this sort of segues my journey through like ovarian failure into almost like a infertility journey because my reproductive endocrinologist was based out of a fertility clinic, which many of them are. And I, you know, up until this point, Marco and I had not done any family planning. We've been married almost two years now, um, and it's just not been something that we have done before um and it's not really something that's even on our radar now
0: right
1: so being you know getting the news that i was in menopause i was pretty open with my family and friends about it and so naturally questions start coming up about fertility family planning you know what are we thinking Mm -hmm. that those kinds of a lot of different questions that we had not confronted at that time especially because my journey was so focused on my own body. I really wasn't right. thinking about family planning at this point. So going into my reproductive endocrinology appointment, I was getting worked up for ovarian failure. And that is also referred to as primary ovarian insufficiency, I think is the term that's more commonly used for it now mm-hmm. because you can, and that just describes anyone whose ovaries stop working before the age of 40 it's actually classified as a rare disease. I think it affects like, um, I don't know, it's like 1% of women. Mm. So it is pretty rare. And that's what they were trying to assess to see if I had. And it's worth mentioning too, I think my case is a little bit more on the extreme end of things. So when I talk about ovarian insufficiency and ovarian failure and infertility, I feel like you've got sort of like the spectrum of what's possible where I'm just so far on the side of like, what's impossible that I don't want anyone listening to think, oh, you know, if I have these symptoms or these experiences, it means that infertility is, or fertility is impossible. That's not the case. It just, is the case right. for me. Um, so I just wanted to lead with that because you can have, a variant insufficiency can actually be caused by things like chemotherapy okay. and um, it can be reversible. Like your ovaries can then heal. Um, we actually have a friend that did experience that. They did chemotherapy. Uh, they preemptively froze embryos just in case knowing that um, ovarian insufficiency would be a probable outcome. And it was, but Mm then, uh, a few years later they ended up getting pregnant naturally as her ovaries healed in time. So it can have a much more positive outcome. I refer to it as ovarian failure still just because my ovaries really, truly did fail in like (laughs) every sense of the word. Um, yeah. So that's what they were looking for to see, you know, is ovarian insufficiency something I'm dealing with? And is there an identifiable cause? Maybe that could be reversible. So I go into my appointment and I'm still not really, uh, I guess, identifying with an infertility journey per se, cause just cause family planning wasn't on my radar, but I was in a, then I was in a fertility clinic and I remember doing the intake paperwork and it was. I was having to do intake paperwork for Marco too, you know, they were like assessing us both together. Um, and I was thinking, Oh, that's interesting. Cause you know, this isn't about fertility for me. I'm trying to figure out if my ovaries are, are uh, totally off the market here. Um, and that was, uh, it was, it ended up being a really cool experience. So I, I'm really glad that we did things the way that we did because at first I was so focused on, um, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my ovaries? What is, you know, what's going to be possible for me? And as soon as I met with my doctor that I ended up seeing, he explained to me why they do things like that, which was helpful because like I said, I wasn't in there for family planning. So it may be, you know, maybe I guess common knowledge or common sense to somebody who has Mm -hmm. dealt with infertility, but he told me, he sat me down and told me that, In order to figure out what happened to my ovaries, they were going to do a series of three fertility tests. And one of those tests was going to be on Marco. It was going to be a semen analysis. And their approach was to look at us as a couple. And based on our results, they wouldn't tell us any of the results until all three of us or all three of the tests were done. Mm -hmm. And then they would just present our options to us as to what we could do. I was in his office asking questions like, well, what about IVF? Can I freeze eggs? Can I do this and that? And he basically told me to, we will tell you what you can do. There's no point in stressing about what the other options are. And that way it's less about what's wrong with you and more like, what can y'all do together?
0: Exactly.
1: It was really nice. Mm -hmm. I really took a lot of the pressure off because made me feel like, okay, so no matter what the outcome is, they'll be able to treat my ovarian failure if that's what it is. And in the future, if we want to grow our family that way Mm -hmm. they'll be able to take care of us that way too which was nice i think it definitely helped with peace of mind in a way yeah Yeah. i think it was it was good for peace of mind i think it was a lot more of a grounded approach to things i really appreciated my doctor he was super um sort of not i feel like stern is the wrong word but he definitely he was like no nonsense about he was very objective like no nonsense he one. Yeah. And he wasn't, he was finally the first provider who wasn't like, you're so young. You'll be fine. Right. He was like, I don't know. We'll find out. I even asked him, I said, when you see women with, you know, the symptoms I'm having, the labs I'm having, how often are they able to, you know, like have eggs or conceive? And he was, he told me, he goes, well, what does that really matter to you? He's like, if you're like the one in 10 woman who can't, what do all those women's results really matter? We're just focused on you. So it wouldn't do you any good right. to know that either way. And I was like, wow, it's like tough love, but yeah. You know, good it doctor. Was, yeah. Yes. It was very assuring for me. So he absolutely sort of uh, assumed control of my emotional well-being uh for the period of time that we did the testing. And it was really nice. It definitely was it helped me to think, oh, you know, there's no point in belaboring sort of these um, these different possible options. Mm-hmm this is another thing that I didn't know going into, you know, fertility testing that I learned at my first appointment was that, um, if you can't ovulate, you can't do IVF or in vitro fertilization. And to people who are listening, that may sound so ridiculous. I just didn't know anything about IVF. I always, you know, figured if conceiving was challenging i knew that there were a lot of options out there and Mm -hmm. i'd heard a lot about ivf so i always i guess in the back of my mind naively assumed that ivf would be an option that was available but he explained that the first test that would be done would be a lupron challenge test where they would essentially test my ability to ovulate at all um they also did some ultrasounds i think when i first got there and the big the big test I was worried about was the Lupron challenge because as soon as I figured, oh, if I can't ovulate, I can't do IVF, I can't freeze my eggs, yeah. that's when I was kind of like, oh, man. And I started to realize even though I hadn't really thought about family planning, if I didn't have the ability to freeze eggs, I knew that was just going to be something that was hard yeah. to cope with. Um, so that was the big one.
0: Right, because like even if you weren't thinking about it yet, that's something that probably down the road yeah, you would want it to be an option. So
1: Exactly, and I always envisioned, you know, having kids in the future, mm-hmm. um, and being a newlywed too, I think, you know, you get asked a lot of questions. Oh, are you going to start having right. kids? And what's stuff. next? Yeah. So you do think about it, and even though we had discussed it and we knew we weren't ready, we knew that in the future we would probably right. want to explore that option, so – that started to live in the back of my mind where I was like, I'm going to have to emotionally prepare for that outcome.
0: Yeah.
1: So the three tests that were done, um, the first was a Lupron challenge where they take a medication called Luprolide and they inject it. They draw your labs, inject it, and then the next day you get your labs drawn again. And they look for your body, your estrogen response to that. Okay. And the way it was explained to me was basically – if you are, you know, in your prime reproductive years, you'll have this big jump in estrogen. And if, you know, you're a little bit older, then maybe you your estrogen will jump only so much and they can do math to figure out how much medication they need to give you to get you all the way up to ovulation. And then the third option is it doesn't really move at all. And in that case, medications not necessarily going to be enough to right. be able to get you to ovulate at that point. And then let's see. I have the papers for what the other two tests in the order works. I had a procedure done. It was called a sonohysterography and a uterine tissue biopsy. And they do that basically to look at um any kind of structural abnormalities that might okay. be existing in the fallopian tubes or in the um Sorry, I'm trying not to make too much noise. No, you're okay. The <laughs> papers. They do that to look... Oh, yeah. So here's my infertility testing introduction. So we got the Lupron challenge test, um, the histrography and... Oh, the histography is the same day as the semen analysis. So those okay. two kind of go hand in hand. And then the uterine tissue biopsy. Um, And the key is that they just would withhold all the results to the tests because they don't want and this makes sense in in retrospect as an inpatient person i was like oh my gosh i wish i could just know the results of the lupron challenge test first but right. you know they don't want to give you the result of one test only to find out that maybe like your fallopian tubes are blocked and that's why okay. or something like yeah. down the road there um the sauna historiography involved um, spraying sort of saline through my fallopian tubes just to make sure that they were open. Um, they did a uterine tissue biopsy where they went in, they just cut out a piece of my uterus. Um, they also looked at my ovaries while they were in there. And that day they always coordinate that with the semen analysis day because they do give you light sedation and you need a driver. So that was the day Marco came in and, and did his semen analysis test. Um, The problem with the testing process was simply the amount of time that it took for it to happen for me. I think it overall, it was, we started in September and we got our results at the end of November. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a challenge. And then I was able to harness the powers of being a pharmacist once again to get my Luprolide prescription, which was really hard to get it wasn't really, it was not super intuitive to get that covered by insurance. It wasn't covered at my regular pharmacy. I had to like coordinate with my insurance provider to find out where I could fill, like why they couldn't fill it. It was going to be, I think like $400 out of pocket, Mm -hmm. but, um, because it's a specialty medication I had to get it filled at specialty Walgreens and then they had to order it and stuff. And that was for me pretty easy to like figure out, but it was once again, just one of those things that I was thinking, man, if I didn't know about how, like the logistics of how insurance right. works with medication, it would have, I would have just been waiting, you know, I don't know if yeah. I even would have known to call my insurance and ask them why it was delayed or, right. um, or why it was that I had to fill at Walgreens versus Publix where I normally fill. Cause that doesn't seem super different, but it's a specialty medication. So it had to be filled at a specialty store in order to get it covered. So that, you know, it just added time. And then you're not able to schedule your next test until you have the current test done. So I went, I had my Lupron challenge done and then I was able to call them. And by then it's like, oh, the next appointments three weeks away. So I was like, oh, this is tough. We were kind of, you know, our backs were kind of against the wall as well because Marco had a work trip in December that he was leaving for. And he would be gone throughout Christmas and New Year. So it was he was going to be gone for a little while. So I was, it was like a race against the clock to see if yeah. we could get everything done. Um, they wouldn't give us the results either if we didn't go in together for them. So it was – really, Yeah. It took a lot of coordination. And I do appreciate the fact that they treated us as a pair. Right. Uh, it definitely added to, like, the logistics sort of hurdle of yeah. figuring out how to do it, though. Ultimately, it was for the best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: also, feel like it gives you that support too.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was it was nice. It once again made it feel like less of what's wrong with Hannah, and exactly. more like what can y'all, what can y'all figure out? Yeah. I think going into the testing process, I f- was pretty convinced by this point that my menopause was permanent. Uh, and I feel like I should also sort of say too that when you have ovarian failure or ovarian insufficiency. You don't really experience menopause the same way. Um, Menopause is usually defined as being like 12 months after your last menstrual cycle Mm -hmm. and they can confirm it on labs by looking at follicle stimulating hormone and it's normally really high because um, usually that is, there's like a negative feedback loop where your pituitary gland will release follicle stimulating hormone to get your ovary to grow a follicle and have an egg mature. When that follicle starts to grow with the egg in it, the follicle releases estrogen. And then as the estrogen builds and increases, that has a negative feedback loop with your FSH. So the more estrogen, it'll then turn off the FSH, just letting your brain know, hey, we did it. We, you know, we grew the follicle and we did it. Yeah. So when you are postmenopausal and you're not producing estrogen from your ovaries anymore, there's nothing to turn off that fsh that your pituitary gland is releasing and so that's why they use fsh as a marker of menopause commonly now by the time that i got diagnosed as being postmenopausal which was in august it had not been a year since my last period but my fsh was so high i was not having a period my estrogen was so low Mm -hmm. that i had all of those typical biomarkers and were
0: you, you were still having the fla- the hot flashes, I'm assuming.
1: Okay. I was having the hot flashes. Um, normally when these changes happen over a period of time that starts, it could start in your 40, like late 40s, early 50s. Yeah. That period of time is called perimenopause, and that's when women will start having hot flashes. Um, their periods might slow down or become irregular mm-hmm. and then ultimately stop, and then they'll get diagnosed as being menopausal or postmenopausal right. at that time. So for me it was like a hundred to zero, where mm-hmm. everything was fine and then all of a sudden boom, like totally nothing. Um, and that ended up having sort of an impact on what the results of our fertility testing was because um when I guess maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit there, but uh even for somebody who's postmenopausal, my labs ended up being pretty bad by menopausal means too. So there's a lot about, I guess, the experience of my particular ovarian failure that was like maybe a little bit more extreme even, which is also, and this is just like my own hypothesis, but I really feel like going hundred to zero made the hot flashes a lot worse. And they were constantly, I mean, it was every hour and a half all the time, all the way up till I ended up doing hormone replacement therapy. So a lot of women don't really experience that. And I think it's because it's usually gradual. Yeah. I was taking supplements too. There's, I think, two over-the-counter supplements that I was using. And they were, I think it was like two different b- types of Estroven. Okay. Um, they were supposed to help with the fl-
0: hot flashes.
1: Yeah. And I know that there's other supplements too that can help. But the Estroven really wasn't. And I was taking it as described on the box. I was using it around the clock. And it really didn't make a difference for me. I was also, I think kind of in denial i mean a lot of people told me that this was going to be an issue that resolved itself so there might have been more i could have done to make the hot flashes less bad like trying different supplements and things but beyond the estrovent i didn't really do anything else um so maybe that i maybe my hot flashes were that bad partially because i didn't do as many supplements as i could have Mm -hmm. going back to the testing i guess i've sort of talked about how it took a really long time um the Lupron challenge was really low drama. I just got my labs drawn two days in a row after getting the shot. The histography was, I it was great for me, and here's why: because they give you a, they give you two shots in the butt before the procedure starts. One of them is a Toradol shot, which is just a an NSAID, a non-steroid anti-inflammatory. It's just a strong pain reliever. Um, the other shot is promethazine, which is a nausea med, and Demerol, a light sedative. And then they gave me a Valium for anxiety. Mm -hmm. I didn't fall asleep. I was awake. They let me have my phone. I was chilling. It was actually great. That's nice. And then Marco was in the other room doing a semen analysis. I'm texting him. I'm like, besides my butt, I feel really good. The shots really hurt. But everything else, I was like, oh, this is great. Uh, And then my doctor, who was actually the attending, this was my first time meeting him. He's the one that did the procedure. The nicest guy ever. He was so cool. He was talking to me about patient dignity and advocacy. And he was asking me all these questions to make sure that Marco is a supportive husband. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was trying so hard to engage in a way that was coherent. I'm like, he really is the best. Yes. (laughs) Let's advocate for women. Yes. But I'm really, you know, I was on this little like Valium. I was like cozy there in the little bed. It was so funny. When I left that procedure, I remember Marco was helping me get in the car and he's on the phone with someone. And I was like, who in the world is he talking to on the phone right now at a time like this? And it was the attending. And he was calling to recommend him some Italian soap operas because I told him that Marco was Italian. Yeah. (laughs) It was so funny. He was just the nicest guy ever.
0: That's so sweet.
1: He, at that point too, I got prescribed doxycycline just for, because they had cut into my uterus. Mm -hmm. So they gave me the antibiotic just to make sure I didn't get an infection. Um, that was great. That's how I found out I'm allergic to doxycycline. So that was fun mm-hmm. in the process of that. The first couple of days I took it, I was just, um, I was, it was making me throw up. Right. And that's pretty normal with that antibiotic. It is hard on the stomach. So I called my, I called the attending and I was like, can, can you please, oh, they had given me promethazine, but promethazine is, um, It's for nausea. It's a little bit more like sedating and can have like stronger side effects than Zofran. And I had taken Zofran in the past. So I was calling to ask him if he'd give me Zofran. Um, He ended up giving me like the mother load. He gave me, it was like, 90 zofrans the like eight milligram disintegrating tablets like the higher dose of zofran he gave me 90 of them for like a seven day course of antibiotics and i didn't end up even taking them because on day two i ended up getting a full body rash so oh
0: my god i stopped it And it was
1: funny he three-way called the pharmacy too and was like is her insurance cover this okay, cool, so she can come get it in 15 minutes? And I heard the pharmacist, and he didn't know I was a pharmacist, or maybe he wasn't remembering that I was a pharmacist, but the pharmacist on the other line was like, no, she cannot get it in 15 minutes. What are you talking about? And I was like cracking up in my head because I was like, yeah, there's, yeah, that's wishful thinking, but I appreciated the energy he brought there. Mm-hmm. So that was fun. Marco got the results of his semen analysis that day too. Generally speaking, they, they sort of presented the results, but then in context- they talked about it a lot more in our follow-up appointment. So we didn't really have um, too much information on that yeah. going into the follow-up appointment. But it went fine for him uh, overall. Pretty low drama experience there. Oh, I also got that day. I got a follicle ultrasound. So this was kind of uh, sort of I thought I, I thought I was read right into what was going on because I got a vaginal ultrasound And I had been having pain on my left side and Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, maybe I have another cyst on my ovary or on my tube. So during the ultrasound, I saw her when she was looking at the left side, she's, you know, circles something and fills it in. And I know nothing about imaging, so let's not, let's not get it twisted. But in my mind, I was like, oh, maybe it's a cyst. Like that would make sense. Like my left side's been hurting. And then I just... And I was telling myself, Hannah, you really can't, don't read too much into imaging because you don't know anything about it. And there's no reason why you would know anything about it. Um, But in my mind, I was like, that explains why my side's been hurting so much. So that, I guess, is kind of all the context we need going into the follow-up appointment, the day that we got our results. Because they didn't really explain the ultrasound, of course. I mean, they're not supposed to. They were going to present it to me at the the follow-up appointment. I finished my, oh, the sauna historiography was November 3rd. So it really took a while between, I had my Lupron challenge done on September 21st. And the next appointment I could get for the sauna historiography was in November. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of tough to have to wait that long. Um, And then from there, our follow-up appointment was two weeks later. It was on the 22nd of November And (laughs) our follow-up appointment was really early in the morning. It was, you know, our specialist that we see is in a city that is like 40 minutes away from us. So we, it was actually supposed to be on a Friday, which was going to be great because then we would take off work. We would get our results. We would have the weekend to be together. And then the following week was Thanksgiving and our family was coming into town. And we're like, this is excellent. We will be able to, uh, You know just spend the weekend the two of us and get our thoughts together and move on from there and our doctor got sick and moved the appointment to tuesday and it was the tuesday before thanksgiving which was the day that my parents were coming into town Mm -hmm. um and which was which was fine it's just you know i was like wow i really would have liked to have had some time you know for us to (laughs) sit with our thoughts because i mean we really didn't know what to expect and you know we're like We might need some time to heal, to grieve. We don't know what's going to happen. Tuesday comes around. I block that time off at work. I'm like, I absolutely cannot come in that day. Marco did the same thing. So the morning of our appointment, both of our phones are blowing up somehow. I'm like, what is going on? There was an emergency at work that warranted my attention. I was so bummed. And they knew that that was like my protected time too. And it's you know obviously not their fault, but I'm getting blown up in the morning calls that are like, can, when can you be here? Like, can you come in? And I'm thinking, I really, I don't, you know, this is tough because it's, I'm going to be at this appointment all day. I won't even be able to get there until after right. lunch, but I'll come after, I'll just drive straight there from my appointment, you know. Whatever. It was one of those things, push comes to shove and you have to you have to show yeah. up. I was like, hopefully I'm in the right headspace to be able to do my job well today. The um, same thing happened with Marco. His work, just catastrophic emergency at work that warranted his attention as well. It was super unfortunate
0: for both of us, but at least it was on both ends. Right. And now a word from our sponsors. I have never been somebody that's good at cooking and enjoys going to the grocery store, finding all the ingredients I need, reading recipes online, getting it all together. And this is why I absolutely love HelloFresh because I can make gourmet meals at home quick and easy And I feel like a professional chef because of them. HelloFresh is extremely convenient. It is delivered right to your front door, and you can choose from over 40 weekly recipes and even choose from over 100 items to round out your order, whether that be snacks, lunches, or even desserts. I personally don't have a family, so I always cook my HelloFresh for myself, and I always have leftovers the next day, which taste just as good as the day before. But HelloFresh makes it so convenient to cook for your family without the high price tag. HelloFresh takes away all of the hassle of having to shop in the grocery stores by delivering fresh pre-portioned ingredients so you have exactly what you need. To try HelloFresh today, just go to hellofresh.com allinsane16 and use code allinsane16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Finding a 100% vegan supplement that contains natural ingredients and targets the root causes of hair thinning as well as promotes healthy hair growth can be extremely difficult. But Nutrafol's newest all vegan formula is for women 18 and older who are living a plant-based lifestyle and are experiencing hair thinning, which let me just mention is extremely common. Nutrafol's women's vegan formula targets the root causes of hair thinning in women, such as metabolism, nutrition, or stress. I personally started getting extremely nervous when I started to see My hair around the sides of my head thinning, especially when I would wear a ponytail I don't really know if it was because of stress Or age or whatever the cause might have been for the hair thinning But since I have started taking neutrophil's women's vegan formula, I have seen such a difference My hair is visibly thicker when I wear it in a ponytail It just feels like I have more volume than I once had and honestly I have seen so many baby hair starting to grow in which is Very, very great, and it gives me a lot of hope that my hair is going to continue to grow longer, thicker, and just have more volume overall. Nutrafol has been extremely easy to add into my daily routine. I just take my supplement at night with dinner, Every single night, I never forget. And don't forget to be consistent because consistency is key. That is how you're going to see results. That's how your hair is going to grow in faster, thicker, stronger, and all of the above. And you will not regret it. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code INSANE find out why over 4000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrifol for healthier hair that is nutrifol.com spelled n u t r a f o l.com promo code insane nutrifol.com promo code insane now back to the episode so the day the the
1: awaited the long awaited day comes where we're supposed to get our results and by this point the anticipation had built up a little bit for the most of the months that I was doing the actual testing, I was doing pretty well with not, you know, belaboring it in my mind and overanalyzing everything because my doctor did such a good job with presenting everything so objectively. But going into the last couple of weeks before our follow-up appointment, when everything was said and done, I was really nervous and I was trying really hard to prepare myself for the worst. Um so that morning, you know, Marco and I are Our peace is shattered by the fact that both of our work have catastrophes, Um, valid catastrophes, not of their, it's not their faults, but it was just a little unfortunate timing. We go into the appointment and this is Marco's first time meeting my doctor, not the attending who did my sauna historiography, but the doctor that I would see regularly. And I forgot to mention that this man was so, he's a chatty man. I forgot to tell Marco that that morning. And I just remember, you know, we were trying to make time. At this point, we both know we have to go to work. So we're like, okay, let's get this appointment done, like lickety split. Our doctor is chatting with us. He ends up making small talk for 26 minutes. 26 minutes. I'm looking at the clock. It's 926. We're still making small talk. And it's just, you know, about, you know, Marco being Italian and yeah. all this stuff. And, it and you know, Miami, I, it was it was, I could tell Marco the wheels were turning he's like what is this Mm -hmm. why is this happening I was starting to get anxious myself because I'm like man like this is he's really talking a lot right so he finally stops talking and he says I'm so sorry when I get nervous I get chatty and to be honest I've been really nervous for this appointment and I just felt my heart sink I was like oh no that means it's gonna be bad yeah and he looks at me and he says it's really rare that I have patients who come in and they're exactly right about what's been going on with their body. And unfortunately, you've been right about everything. So once again, my heart is sinking. I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. And he kind of makes this sort of like side comment, like, blah, blah, blah. You don't have eggs by the way, Marco, and he starts to talk about the female reproductive system, sort of the anatomy just to give him context and like the Mm -hmm. hormone chains and stuff. I'm sitting there thinking, did I hear that right? Did you just say I had no eggs and then he just moved on (laughs) I sitting there. I I felt like my eyes were welling up with tears too. And I was like, and I tell Marco's giving me the side. eye, like, is she okay? Is she okay? Is she okay? And, um, he goes through the chain of hormones during the menstrual cycle and, um, you know, it's kind of explaining that unlike, you know, the male reproductive system, you know, you have this sort of chain of events where if one part of the chain doesn't work, then down the line, Mm -hmm. nothing can really work. And I had a problem in the line and therefore there was nothing that they could really do to make me ovulate. Um, And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this was not you know, completely unpredictable. I did kind of figure that this might be the, the outcome, but then he pulls up this de-identified list of 1200 patients that he's seen. And he goes out of 1200 patients that I've seen since I started my fellowship here, I've only had one woman to have the same type of test results that you do, who was your age. And she actually spent six months on deployment giving x-rays with no protection and she irradiated her ovaries and and your biological footprint is exactly like hers except you don't have a reason (laughs) and i was like wow okay so he was you know telling mark oh you married a one in a million woman i'm still sitting there processing like so there's no eggs right he's saying there's no eggs so he tells me that going through the results of the testing i i did the lupron challenge and I was told, you know, there's these three options. And he tells me that there was a fourth possible result he didn't even tell me about because it was so unlikely, which would be that they gave me the the Lupron shot and then my estrogen dropped. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I quote, that's a sign that your ovary would rather kill itself than produce an egg. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm sorry, I didn't even present that as an option because I just thought it was so unlikely.
0: Yeah, But that's what happened with me. So I was like, oh, cool. Wow. Okay, my ovaries clearly. So after that shot that you got, the levels went down rather mm-hmm. than up. okay yeah rather Jeez. than up
1: or rather than just not Six, moving ten, right yeah
0: so um
1: that was kind of a surprise and you know he asked me if there was any reason why I might have effectively oh no ovaries so my left ovary totally gone missing in action I he told me that Oh, I forgot to mention this. During my sauna historiography, when I'm in my little cozy Valium snuggle with my awesome doctor, he told me that he made a passing comment about not being able to see my left ovary. Oh, it's probably just tucked back there behind the uterus. That went over my head. I didn't even think about it because I'm like, sure, why not? But I then remembered that during the ultrasound, she circled something, which I thought was a cyst, but it turns out that was just the place where my ovary was supposed to be and it wasn't and it just wasn't there anymore i was like are you serious so and it's funny because during my initial laparoscopy i they gave me photos i have photos of my ovaries from april so then it's now november and my left ovary is just has faded to the background and then my right ovary is also on its way out as well
0: That was like, what is that? Like, where does it go? It literally just... The body just... And
1: apparently this is a natural part of like the menopausal process. But, you know, when your body's not really using tissue, it'll just kind of reabsorb it and and take in the nutrients and recycle them. Right. So, yeah, I, I was just surprised it happened that quickly. Yeah. Especially, you know, I was holding on to hope that maybe... We could freeze eggs, mm-hmm. so the going from maybe I could freeze eggs to your ovary is gone right. it was, kind of, it was kind of a mental gymnastics I was doing there. Like,
0: mm-hmm. oh, right, okay, For cool. Sure.
1: And everything else was fine, um, but they did say that well, everything else was fine. I had they did a you know they looked at the follicles that I had in my right ovary. Now, here's the follicle is like the fluid-filled sac around the egg. Every egg is in a follicle. It's like a one-for-one, one, mm-hmm. one egg per one follicle. And during the menstrual cycle, your ovaries will start to develop a few follicles. Ultimately, one of them will win out, and that would be the egg that would ovulate. So by the time they you know, looked at my right ovary during that ultrasound, I had a few follicles developing, but they were all empty. I guess they were able to tell that on ultrasound. Yeah. So they were. they drew a lab, and it is called – let me talk about it – I I'll talk about my labs because they're kind of important for the context for, I guess, how little of anything I had going on in my ovaries. Yeah. Um, there's a marker of ovarian reserve and it's called anti-malarian hormone. And it's on its own, can't tell you like a full picture of your fertility, but it's associated with um, the amount of eggs that you have that can still develop so, sometimes older women, like if you're over 35, they'll recommend that you get your anti malarian hormone drawn um, just to see what your egg reserve might look like. If it's a little on the lower end, it might just mean that you might have to work a little bit harder to conceive. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can't conceive. Um, and then in postmenopausal women, there's sort of a range from uh, optimal to undetectable. And even women in menopause can still have anti-malarian hormone. It might just be like really low because even in menopause, you might have, um, you know, you might have eggs left. It's just, they might be poor quality. You might not be able to ovulate, but there, there could still be eggs there. Uh, my anti-malarian hormone was undetectable, which even by menopausal standards is kind of rare, but it just added to the picture of just no eggs yeah at all to the point that uh my doctor even told me that it's possible i was born with congenital hypogonadism and i maybe never had eggs in my whole life and wow. I, yeah right i was mind blown i told him that i've always had normal periods yeah and he said you can have a period and never ovulate it was it totally blew my yeah, perception of self a little bit. It's like, right. wow, what if I really never even been- had them? Yeah. yeah, right. Thinking about all the times I had irregular periods and took pregnancy
0: tests. Right. And like, well,
1: that was a lot of money mm-hmm. <laughs> spent on those things. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I had undetectable anti-malarian hormone. My follicle stimulating hormone was still high, of course, which makes sense for somebody who's postmenopausal. Really low estrogen. Um. Another level that they took was DHEA, which is um, made in your adrenal glands and it's a precursor to um, androgens and estrogens. And usually in menopausal women, it's higher because what happens is you have a, there's, I think, three endogenous types of estrogens, which means that they're made within your body. Um, the main one is estradiol, which is made in your ovaries. And when you're postmenopausal, you're not making estradiol anymore. The second type is called estrone, and it's made in the adrenal glands mostly. Um, and then I think the third one is estriol, I think is what it's called. And I think it's mostly made during pregnancy. Um, and what happens in menopausal women is that their adrenal glands start working harder because they're not making the ovarian estradiol anymore. So, in order to make estrone, um, you know, your adrenal glands are just working hard. So basically anything that's coming out of your adrenal glands is going to probably be elevated just because they're working over time. So DHEA was one that was high. And then another one that is really elevated in menopausal women is cortisol. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll talk a little bit about cortisol. I think later, once I kind of get through what this last appointment looked like for us, but um, cortisol plays a big part in why um, menopausal women struggle to lose weight and hold their fat in different places in their body. So going back to our final appointment, finding out that I had no eggs, I actually found out that they ruled out a pituitary tumor. Totally did not know that was on the table, but it makes sense that they'd look at you know, pituitary causes of infertility because your pituitary gland in your brain releases um, your follicle-stimulating hormone and your luteinizing hormone, um, which are the two main hormones, I guess, involved in regulating your cycle. He was like, yeah, thankfully, we were able to rule out the pituitary tumor. I was like, the pituitary tumor? Yeah. The who? You <laughs> no won't right. really mention that part to me, but thank goodness. Um, he did say that my uterus and my fallopian tubes were fine, which meant that when it came down to the options for us, for what, if we decide to grow our family in the future, theoretically we could use an egg donor and Marco's sperm. And then I could, in theory, carry the baby in my uterus. Um, and they would just manually supplement the hormones throughout my entire pregnancy. Okay. So that's, you know, when they talked about some of the options, that was probably like the most, I guess the main one that they outlined that they could help us with. Right. They went over the results of the semen analysis with Marco. And this was really funny because it was pretty soon after, you know, he really could not overstate how few eggs I had. Mm -hmm. No ovaries, eggless, no estrogen. Yeah. Desolate. So then he moves on, and I'm, you know, I'm like still tearing up. And they're talking about Marco's semen analysis results, and this was interesting because they had like a camera, like they recorded footage of the individual sperm in the sample, and mm-hmm. they had like a pen sort of tool that traced the paths of the sperm. So we're looking at his semen analysis, and you know, you have the sperm that are like swimming, and some are like you know going in circles or not moving and stuff, and. It's pretty average, I guess, in terms of like his sperm count and yeah. their motility and all of those things. And so then he says, I'm going to show you like a sample from one of our donors. And we're like, okay, yeah, sure. He pulls up this the image, like the sort of the video footage of the donor sperm, all the sperm out. But they're like zoom in, they're like lines, they're straight. There's no one dead in the water. I'm like sitting there trying not to absolutely crack oh, up because we're god. like, what is this guy, the Michael Phelps of sperm? Like, yeah. this is crazy looking.
0: That is so I was funny. like, you didn't
1: have to show us this. And, right. You know, if it was average, it's fine. Like we're yeah.
0: <laughs> Oh my god. I gosh. was dying.
1: And then, you know, the doctor is saying to Marco, Don't, Don't worry, man. You know, we'll get you on a multivitamin <laughs> and that'll really help. And I'm like, laughing internally because Marco takes multivitamins already right and so he's sitting there and he's he's like oh a multivitamin like what what vitamins specifically do I need and my doctor was just kind of like yeah just a regular multivitamin I was cracking up on the inside because oh, I'm like I know God. this man takes vitamins but pff, I mean he did not have to do him like that I was right it was nice like, way to
0: let him know that seriously
1: yeah. oh my gosh it was it was really funny so that is hilarious um and then let's see, other than that, for my last appointment, we talked about getting enrolled in the egg donor registry and that was exciting. Um. It, so then in terms of the ovarian failure, which was then confirmed. So we now, okay. you know, ovarian failure to like the fullest extent of the law. Um. And at that point I was asking him, okay, well, now that I know this is permanent, don't I need to be, don't I need to do something? (laughs) Don't I need to do something? And he, the recommendation was basically to go back to my regular gynecologist and look into hormone replacement therapy and what those options would look like. So that was pretty much at that point, they shifted gears and they were like, okay, you know, these test results are valid for the next five years. And if you decide you want to, you know, use one of our egg donors, we'll, Help you, and will manage you throughout your pregnancy and stuff. So it was kind of the end of what they could do for my um, yeah. ovarian failure diagnosis and treatment. But it feels really good to know that you know for the next five years we have the option of going back and and using them. But I did a I looked through the egg donor registry, and um, you know we we're not family planning, we're still not. Um, but it kind of made me feel as I was very much filled with admiration for the women that were on the registry. I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, good for them. Um, but it for us, I think kind of solidified that we might want to use a donor maybe that we knew.
0: Yeah.
1: And then beyond that, um, we haven't really approached family planning again and I went back to my regular gynecologist and my primary care provider. My primary care provider is the best person maybe ever he is, he's pretty young. He, this has like become his crusades. (laughs) He told me that he and his wife struggle with infertility as well. And so this has become like his thing. Like he's Mm going to help me with this. And we talked about, um, you know, just the ways that I need to now use supplements for trying to stave off some of the long-term effects of menopause. Um, for example, I have an increased risk of a cardiovascular event by virtue of how long I'll be in menopause compared to the average woman. Um, It's kind of funny though, because birth control can also increase your risk for a cardiovascular event. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like either way, Mm -hmm. sort of dodging a heart attack here for the rest of my life. Um, But estrogen plays such a vital role in so many different body systems that the symptoms of menopause are like, there's a lot to address. Um, For example, you know, bone health is one that comes to mind pretty immediately because estrogen plays a big part in the life cycle of your bone cells. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why when you're postmenopausal, you're more likely to get osteoporosis and taking calcium and vitamin D is really important. So I have a bone scan scheduled for later this year. Um, So we'll find out how my bones have held up in all of this, you know, lack of estrogen we talked about supplements. I talked to him about diet and exercise, which has been like the thorn in my side because there is so much conflicting information about diet and exercise for postmenopausal women. And especially with exercise, I felt like it was so hard to find anything that even really like pertained to me Um, because if it wasn't, you know, based on menopause, it was recommendations based on age. And I'm like, okay, I don't really fit a menopausal, but I am only 26. And, oh, one of the tests that they did, they measured my metabolism and my metabolism's normal. And so it was kind of interesting in the context of, uh, you know, I'd really up until like August really struggled with weight gain and then plateaued. And then um, at that point I wasn't gaining more weight, but I also wasn't burning fat. Right, yeah. Coming out of our fertility appointment, my focus became basically how do you live with menopause in a way that is sustainable? How can I avoid having a heart attack? How can I avoid osteoporosis? How can I avoid all these horrible things that are now on the table for me? And I started to consider hormone replacement therapy because it's now, you know, it's November. I'm still hot flashing like crazy. It's terrible. It was actually worse in the winter too because- I would have a hot flash in response to the heat kicking on. Mm. So annoying. So I would have even more frequent hot flashes in the winter than I was in the summer. So I did kind of, I tackled every like my health from sort of three different angles. Mm-hmm. I um, did, okay. I went back to my gynecologist to do hormone replacement therapy. And I went to my primary care to do the everything else therapy. <laughs> and then... For diet and exercise, I met with a nutritionist, okay. uh, specifically a sports medicine one. So I'll talk about each one of those um, individually. So I guess I'll start with the gynecologist because this was sort of the biggest thing that I did. That's yeah. made the biggest difference for me. I went to back to my gynecologist, the one that had said, you know, oh, you're beyond my scope of practice. I got in to see him. It was actually his wife. So he stopped. He started doing surgery only. So then my provider was his wife. Um, I went in to see her and I was feeling by this point, oh, you know what? I skipped all of Thanksgiving and this is worth circling back to. Okay. The day of our appointment and then, <laughs> which was comically terrible because then I had to go to work after that and so did Marco. Yeah. Marco ended up, you know, we're driving back like for 40 minutes and we're both in the car making calls, trying to coordinate with work. And he even says, Hannah, we have to talk about this. Like, We're going to have to talk about this appointment at some point because your parents get here tonight and this drive is really the only time. But we were both on the phone the whole time trying to do, like, yeah. handle these work emergencies. Marco was at work till 3.30 in the morning that evening. I get home from work. My parents were in town. They're asking questions, of course. It was really nice, actually, to have them there. Right. Um, there was a lot of, I think, a learning curve for the next like couple months with talking to family and friends about everything. I really had no idea what I was feeling about anything. I was just so shell shocked, I guess, yeah. because my results were so extreme, even for ovarian insufficiency, even for menopause. Um, my parents were asking, you know, a lot of questions about how I was feeling. well, what's gonna happen next? Like, what are you gonna do? Are you going to do hormone therapy? What are you thinking about fertility? What are you guys going to do to grow your family? What do you need from us? Mm -hmm. Um, And I really was just, I don't know. I really don't know. I have no idea. Um, The week of Thanksgiving goes, and it's sort of like a whirlwind. We had all our family in town. Um, I did confide in some of my friends kind of the results of what was going on. I talked to some of my coworkers about it, and... I, at that point, was still really hung up on sort of the body horror of knowing that I had no ovaries anymore. Yeah. And uh, I really was struggling to get past that. And it just felt like all the questions we were getting asked were about family planning, and babies, and like what was going to happen in the future. And uh, it was just a really interesting experience. Um, one that I'm grateful I had with my family because I would rather, you know, I didn't know what things they would ask that might either hurt my feelings or yeah, or make me sad or whatever. So it was nice that they were in town and I had to, you know, I could have those conversations with them versus Absolutely. with friends, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want to, I can like fall to my knees and cry and be like, mom, dad, I'm not ready to talk about that. But I feel like if I did that with a friend or a coworker, it would be a little bit come off a little mm-hmm. bit more unhinged. Um we got a lot of, um, advice and we got, you know, we, some of the, I guess I'll sort of like condense some of the maybe more inappropriate things that were asked throughout, like not just Thanksgiving week, but like throughout the next couple months after that. But there was, um, we were advised to get a second opinion, like pretty heavily from a few different people and It was like almost they couldn't accept the results of what happened. And that was really challenging because I felt like I finally had a little bit of closure. It was like, okay, this door is maybe closed. I
0: finally have answers.
1: Yeah. And it's like we know what we can do moving forward. So my doctor told me, you know, you're going to have to over time make peace with the fact that you won't have closure because we don't know why this happened. Mm -hmm. Even after all the testing and and everything we just, you know, there was still no cause, which is actually the case in I think ninety percent of ovarian insufficiency is actually wow. idiopathic or there's they can't attribute it to a cause, which made you know figuring out the next steps even more challenging. So yeah, we were you know adv- heavily advised to get second opinions, and that was really challenging because I was like, you know, this is my one chance for closure. I can't. I just did three months of testing. I'm not yeah. ready to go Do back. It again yeah exactly like it's you know i got i was sort of made to feel like i don't believe in miracles because i don't think i can spontaneously conceive and i'm sitting there thinking you know i don't have eggs like that's not going to be the miracle that happens in this process it was kind of it was hard to hear people say things like, have faith or just believe that it'll it'll happen. like you never know what could happen. And I'm like, well, I know I don't have eggs, but I'm right. fully willing to like believe in the miracle that we might be able to grow our family in the future or that the future will be really lovely. But if I you know hang up on this m- hopeful miracle that I'll spontaneously conceive, then I'll be disappointed forever.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So it was hard. I did. There was like a few different instances where, you know, I was kind of made to feel like I was the one being closed-minded about your own body. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, there was a, you know, I had a a, a couple instances of of people sort of um, almost reacting like I was being closed-minded to like adoption or other options that don't involve eggs because I was so sad about not having eggs. And I, that was wild because I was, you know, really struggling to come to terms with the fact that I didn't have ovaries anymore, not just because of family planning. It was just in general, I think it is kind of horrifying to find out maybe I never had eggs. Who knows? I didn't know why that threw me off so much, but I really actually did struggle with coming to terms with that. Um, and it wasn't, you know, I was like, I, I'm not thinking about adoption. I'm not even thinking about a regular baby. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm right. not, so it's not like I'm closed off to that idea. It's just, I have to figure out why it is that me not having eggs or ovaries is something that's upsetting me so much. And to this day, I still don't really know what it was. I think just, um, I think it was just like a subversion of my expectations for myself and my future.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's not like I feel pessimistically about our future family options including adoption it's just I needed time to process what happened and so that was a little bit challenging it made me feel a little bit like uh, it was hard to talk about family Mm -hmm. planning because I didn't know what to say because we weren't thinking about it and I didn't want to say something that made it sound like I was I don't know, closed mind. It was very strange.
0: Yeah, it just wasn't the first thing on your mind about the whole
1: Yeah, it kind of led to questions. I would ask Marco, like, am I wrong for feeling like my focus is on – I'm, like, really sad for for me and my body right now, and I'm scared because I don't know, like, what I'm supposed to do medically moving forward, but everyone's talking about babies, and nobody's, Mm -hmm. like, asking about me, and, like, it really threw me in the beginning. Um, I just needed time to kind of get my feet under me, and now I'm a lot more open to talking about the future. But at the time, before I even had a plan for hormone therapy, before I even knew what I was supposed to do for supplements, I was still, you know, not sure what to do to just treat menopause in general. Right. It just felt like everyone was like skipping over all those steps and, and being like, we're going to have this baby. I'm like, what baby? Yeah. <laughs> There's not a baby yet. Right. <laughs> My bones could be brittle. I have no idea mm-hmm. at this point. <laughs> So Thanksgiving week was it was pretty not just Thanksgiving, because this was over, I guess, like a couple month period of, you know, it was good though to have those conversations with my close circle because we really do have like the best support system. Mm-hmm. And I tell Marco all the time that uh it's like we had the best case for like the worst case scenario. Yeah, you know, with our our friends and family were really awesome. And it was it was good to be asked things that maybe pushed my own personal boundaries because then I knew what my boundaries were. Whereas if, you know, I'd been asked that by like a coworker or a friend, maybe it would have been, um, harder to handle gracefully than with my family. I could be like, um, actually, you know, that question maybe made me feel a little bit attacked or made me, made, made me feel a little bit sad or whatever. Right. Um, so that kind of segues into then December Marco goes on his trip and this is only a week later after our appointment, you know, our family was in town for most of it. And we really didn't have too much time to sit down with the two of us and Mm -hmm. figure out how we felt. And that was, I think, probably the hardest aspect about it for him. Cause he was always, you know, his biggest priority just being like, am I doing okay? Which I super appreciate. Um, but I know that it was hard on him to know that his, he had this work trip coming up and he was going to be leaving me with so many questions. And, um, so yeah, December was kind of, it was a really important month for me because I kind of made a commitment to myself to sort of work through, I don't want to say work through my grief just all in one month, but for the time that he was gone, I really wanted to kind of answer some of those questions that I was having in my mind so that by the time he got back, we could, you know, meet at the same starting yeah. line and heal together from there and look forward to the future. So I did a few different things. Like I said, I met with my gynecologist, my primary care provider and a nutritionist. Um, I also started doing audio journaling and okay. it was funny cause I was listening to those audio journals before I came here today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I left, it's funny, I don't remember doing this, but I left so many notes to my future self. I'm like, future Hannah, if you're listening, I hope that, you know, you can listen to this and smile and feel better about where you're at. And I really, I oh, do. I was, it was yeah. very nice. Um, audio journaling really helped a lot with just processing my feelings and try to answer questions like why I really struggled with guilt after finding out that I had no eggs. And I'm like, what is that about? I mean, like, why am I feeling... Uh, why am i feeling so guilty and yeah. like was it something i did that caused this because we don't know so we don't know if maybe it's my fault and um being able to f- vocally process the just the confusing emotions that i had was really helpful for me i went back to my gynecologist and saw like i said the guy's wife who was now my main gynecologist to talk about hormone therapy mm-hmm. i was initially pretty averse to the idea of it because the thing is i told her my big fear is that if i go back on hormone therapy you know i had the worst experiences with birth control growing up right and i know for a fact that my endometriosis will come back in response to me having estrogen again so excuse me so it was a matter of finding a balance where i could have estrogen and progesterone and not trigger an endometriosis flare and how do you find that balance um she pretty much told me you know if you are left untreated you'll perpetually have these hot flashes and You'd be miserable you'll be miserable you have a higher risk for a heart attack like soon and then you um you know your bones all this stuff so i was like okay maybe the endometriosis is not as bad as yeah. <laughs> a cardiovascular event um we talked about some options and by the time of my appointment, which was, let's see, I think it was like January or February. It had been since April that I had had estrogen. So I was starting to actually suffer from the um, genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which are just, you know, the typical um, like vaginal and urinary s- symptoms that mm-hmm. you sort of affiliate vaginal dryness being the main one. And that can lead to complications down the road, mostly vaginal atrophy, which... So you're, the lining of the vagina actually needs estrogen to maintain its integrity. And what happens when you're postmenopausal is that lack of estrogen causes that um, vaginal lining to thin and become dry. And if, you know, I'll be in menopause for a much longer time than anybody else. Right. So there's like the chance that it could get so dry and thin that it fully just shuts... And that's, I was like, let's try to, let's get in front of that. You know, my doctors were like, oh, we'll treat the vaginal atrophy. I'm like, can we not get in front of it? Maybe like, let's, let's do, can we try to avoid that at all costs? Um, So by the time I had my gynecologist appointment, I really was um, having, you know, like I would go on like a long run. And by the end, Mm -hmm. it felt like the vaginal dryness, it honestly, it's hard to describe, but it felt like almost like chafing but like on the inside really yeah it was super uncomfortable and i was interesting
0: that you could feel that like with it like on the inside of too yeah Yeah.
1: and it was so it was really affecting me most in my day-to-day and i had been counseled you know by my um gynecologist about vaginal dryness and encouraged Mm -hmm. to like you know use lubrication during intercourse which is where a lot of women struggle with vaginal dryness being most prominent during intercourse yeah because it can lead to painful sex, which makes sense. But for me, it's like, you know, during intercourse, you can use lube and that yeah. helps. But like when I'm on a run or if I'm standing in the pharmacy all day and I have this vaginal dryness, I'm not going to go lube up like, right. at work. You know what I mean? So yeah. for me, I think the vaginal dryness and sort of like the urinary um, syndrome was more of a problem in my mm-hmm. regular day to day than versus like in my intimate life. Right. Um, and they were, you know, I was told by one doctor, like, you'll have to become comfortable using lube. Like, ah, yes, become comfortable. Got it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. I will learn all about that. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so I talked to her a lot about that aspect. So I'm like, yo, I don't want this vaginal atrophy is not, it can't be on my 2023 bingo card. Right. I've seen enough at this point. Like, what can we do? So before I started systemic estrogen replacement, I started using estrogen intravaginal tablets. Mm-hmm. And I did those for two weeks and then went back because she was like, take two weeks. Think about what you want to do for estrogen. Because I really told her I wanted to use a cream because you can use creams that get absorbed systemically. Okay. She really wanted me to use the ring I had a lot of reservations about the NuvaRing. Um, so we compromised and I used the NuvaRing. Ring. <laughs> I kind of went into my appointment with the mindset of, I just have to do whatever she says because she's like a little bit obstinate and was kind of not really hearing what I was saying. Yeah. She actually, I think at one point she, I started tearing up in her office um, because I really just didn't know what to do. And I'd been told by everybody like, oh, you just, you know, you have to figure out what's best for you. Mm -hmm. Like you have to do what's best for you. Every single person told me that. And I'm like, I don't know how to figure that out. I have no idea. So I was, you know, telling her like, I'm sorry, I'm just, you know, I'm a little emotional because I feel like I've gotten that advice a lot and I really just don't know where to start. And Mm -hmm. that's why I'm here. I'm trying to figure out what's best for me. And she said, see, your, your body needs estrogen. You're crying for no reason. It's a sign that you need to start supplementing with your estrogen again I was like for no reason yeah I just explained plenty, it I, I had plenty of reasons. yeah I was like I thought I was kind of eloquent with how I just explained that uh-huh. decision fatigue and all that but yeah so I just decided I was gonna try whatever she wanted me to try
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I started maneuvering in I think March um, and it was really nice because after a week the hot flashes went away. And oh I have God. not had a hot flash since, which is good. Fabulous. I'm sure that's a big relief. Oh my gosh. The quality of life that right. I got back. So, and I mean, I was waking up every hour and a half in the middle of the night, sweating, like throwing the covers off. And now that I can sleep a little bit more soundly, mm-hmm. I felt, I slept through the night. I had the most productive day of my entire life yeah. the next day. Wow. I was like, holy cow, I'm like a superhuman now. But I was still, um, I'm still like relatively new to using NuvaRing, mm-hmm. it hasn't been that long and I it's not the perfect solution for me I've noticed. Part of the problem is that NuvaRing is only FDA approved for contraception mm-hmm. and the way that it's used is you do 3 weeks on and then 1 week off to have a period. Right. But I don't have a period, so mm-hmm. she told me just use it all 4 weeks and in that last week of the month I noticed that um, it's almost like I go through menopause again the last week of every month with ring, And I read the package insert and the drug information says you can wear it for four weeks. But I noticed in the last week, I do get like vaginal dryness like pretty badly. Mm-hmm. Um, it messes with my mood a lot. It makes me nauseous. And then every time I change my ring, I get really nauseous. And I think it's because of just, you know, right. the yeah. ebb and flow versus if it was more constant. So... I've not yet cracked the code on exactly what's going to be best for hormone replacement. I use the intravaginal estrogen tablets a lot during that last week before I changed my ring. But I can't go three weeks on and change my ring because insurance won't pay for you to fill it soon. Like that soon, like a week early every month, unfortunately. So I don't really know moving forward what I'm going to do about that. And it's still
0: all pretty like new and fresh too, that it's like, yeah. I feel like it, with anything, it's a lot of trial and error and like experimenting to see, like you said, what works best for you.
1: you definitely. And
0: if you recall, I have an appointment coming up on June 6th of 2023
1: mm-hmm. that I never canceled because I forgot about it. Mm-hmm. And so it's with, you know, the initial clinic they referred me to. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'll go see them. And then, you know, they'll, you know, maybe at this point be able to, tell me if my hormones are where they're supposed to be with the ring. So you'll get testing again? What I think, I'm not going to go through all the fertility testing again, but what I'm hoping that they'll do is just draw my hormone levels again. Okay. Because I haven't had them looked at since I started hormone replacement therapy, mm-hmm. and I don't think they're as high as they're supposed to be. Okay. Um, the guideline recommendations for ovarian insufficiency – Are to um, supplement with systemic estrogen and topical estrogen and ovarian insufficiency. You tend to need more estrogen than just regular hormone replacement therapy and menopause Mm -hmm. because you're ideally trying to get your estrogen back up to like the appropriate level for your age.
0: Right.
1: Um, So, my theory is uh, that I just don't think I'm quite all the way back up where I need to be. Yeah. And I can just tell because of the breakthrough menopause symptoms i still struggle with so i'm hoping that if they can remeasure my hormone levels maybe they can find a way to optimize Mm -hmm. the therapy i'm currently on um which would be nice because it would save me a trip going back to my regular gynecologist who doesn't um i don't think she just gets an idea and then wants to do it i don't think she really listens to me very well Mm -hmm. um so that was a big that was a big change i also went to my primary care provider and We had just regular labs drawn, um, which was how I learned that when you're in menopause, your cholesterol spikes, which I didn't know until I got my lipid panel done. And now I have high cholesterol, which Mm was, I was like, awesome. Yeah, just add add that to the list. Yes, it was like great, fabulous. Love to hear it. Uh, So yeah, I take fish oil now. But it was kind of funny because the the girl that called me to read my lab results, this was after like a really emotionally charged appointment with my primary care provider who like wants to help me so much and understands my struggles with, um, you know, like diet and exercise and he knows how hard I'm working Mm -hmm. and everything like that. But it was funny. I got the call to read my labs and, um, you know, the girl was saying, "Oh yeah, so your cholesterol is a little high. I recommend maybe changing your diet and exercise to try to you can just add a little bit more exercise, and you can you can bring your cholesterol down." I am sitting there like, oh, "You have no idea. I'm yeah. trying so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to do." Mm-hmm. I will add fish oil. So I'd be interested to see my cholesterol now. Now right. that I have estrogen again, since that was the only. Yeah. Thing because I've had I've had lipid panels done just like routine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and really the only difference is that I went through menopause. And so I'd love to know now that I have estrogen, maybe is my cholesterol lower? Right. I don't know. So we'll see. Um, my primary care provider also did some autoimmune testing mm-hmm. because one of the possible causes of ovarian failure are like a range of autoimmune diseases. Um, and I actually had some come back positive. So yeah. I've got a rheumatology appointment later this year. That was kind of, um, out of left field. I had yeah. like some really high autoimmune results, um, that got me referred really like quicker than mm-hmm. would be normal. So maybe I'll find out a little bit more as to what possibly caused this. Right. Um, I think that, you know, question that I've been asked a lot by family and friends is why is it that you don't think that the endometriosis or the surgery itself caused it? And the answer to that would be that, um, well basically cause every single one of my providers told me that it was not likely that the yeah. laparoscopy was the, the thing that caused them to actually fail. It was probably mm-hmm. just, you know, my like ovaries. The last straw. Yeah, yeah. Just the stress. The ovaries just couldn't come back from it. Um, and then with endometriosis it you know i think there's it can i guess cause I mean, by virtue of injury to the mm-hmm. ovaries um, but it's not like a super common cause of ovarian failure and my endometriosis was diagnosed as being mild anyways which right. blew my mind because my symptoms were so bad but it was supposedly mild so i don't think that was necessarily maybe what caused it either so mm-hmm. i'm not so um fixated on finding a root cause anymore as i was at first Mm -hmm. because i just think as long as i can do my due diligence to rule out certain factors exactly that's about as good as it's going to get for me um and
0: like you were saying before too it's more so about like okay but what are the positives that you can do from here exactly you know like for yourself and and just in general i feel like that's the best way to look at it too of like the positive outcomes of it in a
1: way Definitely, especially because I feel like I can be a person again. I feel like I spent the latter part of like 10 months just solely focused on this because it affected every part Mm -hmm. of my life. Now I feel like I've got this hormone therapy. I've got a plan in place. I met with a nutritionist. I kind of got a plan for that as well. And now it's, you know, I can just kind of – I can move forward and be a real human. Right,
0: and I feel like in those aspects you do have answers of 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 like what things can help. And I feel like the more – like even – like the next appointment that you go to, they might even have more suggestions. So it's like, at least you have those outlets of like, okay, well, what can help me and make yeah. me feel better? Cause like nobody ever wants to be miserable, exactly. you know?
1: And if I have, you know, I have appointments moving forward, which gives me a little structure. Mm-hmm. I know I can look forward to that versus, um, you know, at the end of our fertility testing, it was kind of like, okay, bye. And then mm-hmm. I had to decide what I was going to do from there. And, and that was really like a major challenge. Um, right. I also, um, you know, they were able to rule out like thyroid causes of mm-hmm. ovarian failure for me, which was nice. Cause that's another one that can, can really contribute. And it was a question I got asked a lot by, um, some of my other doctors too, was if I would had my thyroid looked at and I did like to a pretty extensive extent right. multiple times. And so was, at least one of my glands is working well. Yeah. That's good to hear.
0: And like you said too, so this is something that a lot of times they don't know the cause, right? So yeah, it's just, the majority okay. of
1: the time, actually. Yeah. And most of the time they can really only attribute it if it's something that's been like chemotherapy induced, right. or if the patient's already had a
0: diagnosis for autoimmune. They can try and attribute it that way, but. So with the autoimmune stuff, you won't really know. Like the the one test result said that you were like they were like what was it?
1: So I had a. It was basically just an antibody like okay. an autoimmune. So antibody you don't know test. exactly
0: yet. Right. Okay. So
1: I'll go to a rheumatologist in the fall and they will, um, they can like specify more. Yeah. okay Cause there's actually, there are specific antibodies geared towards the ovaries and Got if it. those are high, then that would mean that my body had at some point attacked my ovarian tissue. Got it. And that's kind of what I think might've happened. Mm-hmm. I did have this sort of random event when I was first dating Marco. Um, there was this time where I had an endometriosis flare, but during that week i woke up in the middle of the night with like the worst abdominal pain it was like it was so bad but then it didn't go away with my period it lasted like a couple months after that and it just felt like i was injured on the inside and so in retrospect i wonder if there was like some sort of autoimmune Mm -hmm. something that happened and that might have been because that was right before i started the process of getting tested for endo and then getting the surgery so it would have been right
0: before the um laughing at the cat (laughs) i know so i'm like what is she up there like i'm like imagining her up there walking in circles just crying for no reason
1: i kind of love it we we have cats at home we actually have a lot we have um four kittens at our house right
0: now oh my goodness
1: yeah it's fun they're all getting ready to go to their respective homes oh
0: that's so cute yeah
1: it's been a good time um what else i'm trying to think of Oh yeah. One thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was what I learned about the way that diet and exercise is so different from menopause. Cause like, I know I mentioned a litany of times that Mm -hmm. I struggled a lot with it uh, throughout this process and kind of where I'm at now with it. Um, what I didn't really realize was that cortisol plays a really heavy role in the way that your body, um, you know uses and metabolizes fat it does a lot of different things so does estrogen actually <laughs> kitty please
0: kitty's like i just want to be a part of this please kitty yeah relax maybe maybe <laughs> just to relax a little bit
1: huh maybe we're just hanging
0: out i know <laughs> she's just
1: ugh, just wanna squish her she's right i way. know <laughs> she's just kitty oh my she's gosh she's just kitty All right, keep going. Just ignore her. (laughs) (laughs) So um, estrogen plays a pretty big role in the way that your body um, uses and stores adipose tissue. And then cortisol um, also plays a big role in the way that your body uses and metabolizes fat um, and carbohydrates as well. And it does a lot of other things too. But in the context of menopause, I didn't realize that your adrenal glands end up working a lot harder because that's where you're getting your estrone from when your estradiol isn't coming from your ovaries anymore. And so, my doctor was explaining to me that postmenopausal women tend to have really high cortisol, and every basically everything that comes out of your adrenal glands ends up being elevated because mm-hmm. of that. They're just working a little bit harder. Um, and so, the way that that impacts your diet and exercise is like pretty profound and kind of contributes heavily to sort of why there's so much conflicting information about what to do for diet and exercise for menopausal women um not a super heavily studied population menopausal women especially not in exercise science but i was you know i figured that with my background i would be able to like peruse you know the literature and try and figure something out and maybe be able to piece something together. I was so confused. I was looking through all this information. There were so many conflicting things, like articles that say, you know, long running is like the worst thing you could ever do. Mm -hmm. You know, it increases your cortisol to, like anytime you exercise, your cortisol increases. Mm -hmm. That's normal. Um, but you know, long running can really increase it, and then you should do high interval intensity mm-hmm. or whatever it's called, hit training. Yeah. Um, I've seen articles that say whatever you do, don't do hit if you're in menopause; it's so bad. I'm like, so it's great. It's so confusing, and so, so have
0: you I'm, figured out something that works for you, or like has helped at all?
1: So I, you know, this kind of all forced me to really um, have a lot more grounded expectations for fitness and lifestyle which has been really nice um so most of my my fitness is geared towards just general health and bone Absolutely. health and, yeah um which is good because it's not it's not so much about like a you know the look, look yeah. and and i think that's a lot better too because i i really like running uh, i always find it really relaxing so mm-hmm. i would do a lot of like a long running so all of a sudden i'm seeing all this information like don't long run right. i'm like oh no what am i gonna do um I actually started doing a lot more weightlifting Mm because the impact on the bone health is so good. Yeah. And I've been doing that now for over a year. And I noticed that um, that's been the thing that actually really did change the way my body was shaped Mm -hmm. finally after all this time. Yeah. So lifting heavy has been, or I should say heavier for me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lifting heavier has been a lot better. And then with running, I think what I've deduced is that Running with like a higher level of intensity is better than mm-hmm. doing like slow longer Long, runs. Yeah. But then you know, I also recently saw um a woman who does like marathon and half marathon training plans for postmenopausal women. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So it was really cool because I think that her stuff is more um. It's like the types of training is just different and prioritizes recovery because right obviously sleep and recovery is the way that you want to reduce cortisol. Oh, there's nothing more patronizing or demeaning than going through all these articles trying to figure out what to do and it's like your cortisol can be elevated when you're postmenopausal try and relax Mm -hmm. try and chill try and make sure that your cortisol don't stress Mm -hmm. i'm like okay i'm super stressed
0: right (laughs) you know that's not a tangible for me unfortunately Mm -hmm. i was gonna say too you know there's definitely other people out there that you know might be experiencing this or going through something similar but it's probably such a small percent that mm-hmm. that's why it's not really like research and there's not like I feel like exact information on what can you do or what works and what doesn't so yeah that's interesting too like I said it is another example of even in that aspect trial and error just yeah. figuring out well what's going to work best for me and then even like you said even making it I mean it's, it's annoying and it sucks because obviously when you work out you want to see a change and you yeah. want to see results but at the same time it's kind of nice to have that shift of okay well at least I know I'm doing it for general health and taking care of my body and bones rather than just like okay well how do i look on the outside because obviously like i feel like the whole point of all of this is like to know that you're healthy on the inside you know and to keep doing what you can to keep that up and in, in the best way that you can
1: yeah definitely i think it it was a, a good sort of maturing point for me too oh, absolutely. sort of forced me to to have those better and more grounded goals and mm-hmm. Um, which I think has been really, you know, I've had, I've made so many like strides in my general fitness that I've been really excited about too. So yeah, it's been a, a good mind shift and with the diet too, you know, I think I kind of just had to end up, figuring out, figuring out what's best for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of, you know, we eat, we kind of lean into like the Mediterranean style. thing. Um, but I also try really hard to increase my dairy since I need calcium and vitamin D man. I have never liked milk and I really feel like this is coming back karmically to like bite me in the butt because I have not, I don't, I still don't drink milk Uh of any kind, but, um, And now I'm like, oh, no, my lack of dairy is finally catching up to me. This is is all my fault. I need to eat more cheese. Thank goodness I'm not lactose intolerant. At least I have that going for me. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so it's definitely been a major lifestyle shift. And in a lot of ways, I think are – oh, I will say I am really glad that I am young enough to be able to make new habits. Because I imagine for women who experience these drastic changes when Mm -hmm. they're like 40 and 50 – That's like forty and fifty years of habits of like eating and moving. And I, you know, silver lining is that at least I can figure out, you know, the things that are sustainable for me. Absolutely. And continue to do them moving forward. Yeah. Like searching for silver linings everywhere. But Mm -hmm. that's been one of the the positives. And then another thing to what you said about the fact that, you know, only a small percentage of the population is affected. I'm definitely sort of reliant on research for Women who are postmenopausal. But, you know, like you said, that still doesn't, a lot of that stuff is they compensate by doing age based research. Right.
0: And I'm not 50. No. So, what's I was going to say too? I think automatically people kind of just know that the older you get, your metabolism slows down. So it's like, it's harder to lose weight when you work out and you have to kind of watch what you eat more. But yeah, like you said, that's more like age based. Yeah. So when you're younger and like I said, if they're like, the percentage is probably so small of like girls that are going through this. So it's like, it it doesn't really line up at all.
1: It doesn't. It's hard. Mm -hmm. It's, um, I even, you know, initially I tried to find like support groups that of of girls with the same issue as me, but at the time that I was looking for them, I think it was just a little too like soon, a little Mm -hmm. too raw. I just felt like I need to process. Yeah. Like take a step back and figure out what I'm feeling first. But um, yeah it's interesting because I the age, like the age related changes I remember you know being early to mid 20s you start to notice like things change right so what was really interesting was um, after the surgery just seeing everything go to like the millionth extent and right. being able to be like oh so this is like the estrogen mm-hmm. stuff versus the you know what i normally affiliate with aging and right. actually one thing that was two things that were really affected were my skin and my hair and I noticed that I didn't – I used to have normal skin. Now I have, like, really dry skin. And yeah. even with estrogen replacement therapy, I um, I still deal with dry skin for the first time in my right. life. Um, and then it was kind of funny. I went and got my hair done. And it was, like, a month after I started maneuvering And my hairdresser was like, wow, your hair's really grown a lot. Mm-hmm. She was like, what? Well, it's just, like, it feels so healthy. Like, what did what are you doing to yeah. it? And I was like <laughs> – Estrogen, I guess. So right. I guess it really did make a big difference because mm-hmm. it was, uh, it just was thin and like almost like falling out a lot more. Yeah. So it's interesting to see those effects as a young woman because I'm right. like, I saw, you know, I can't attribute all of it to age. But then I think about like the normal process of aging and mm-hmm. how menopause on top of that. I mean, that just creates such a a drastic Change that I don't think that, you know, I think that postmenopausal women are really preyed upon too by diet and supplement industry and also the cosmetic industry. Mm -hmm. And right now, you know, anti-aging is sort of everything Mm -hmm. in terms of like what's trendy right now and stuff, but, um, not a lot being done about, you know, research into things that can actually help with health and wellness, like exercise science studies on postmenopausal women or people with, um, different hormone statuses in general Mm -hmm. and there's like so many different kinds of hormone disorders or reproductive health disorders that affect men and women absolutely you just don't really see them represented a lot in no literature and it makes sense because it's such a small probably um it's not like a super profitable market but it's interesting to be you know in the position that i am as a healthcare worker and and you know navigating this as a patient at the same time Mm -hmm. it's been a Definitely an eye opening experience. And I've always um had a lot of like sympathy and respect for my menopausal women I take care of. But mm-hmm. now it's like to the millionth right. extent. So I'm like, wow, this, I mean, yeah. I knew it was bad. I can bad, relate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this sure. is, you know, this is way worse than I thought mm-hmm. it was going to be.
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting too, because kind of going back to what you were saying before about all of the questions. And I feel like people around you, obviously family and friends, like there I feel like natural reaction and question is like, oh, what about kids and stuff? But I feel like it probably is easy to forget and kind of brush over like what you were going through, even physically, like all of the, like all those years and all that time of like the pain and like even prior to any of this, but like the periods too. Yeah, And it's like, I feel like there was never like a break for you to just like get yourself together and figure out like, okay, where, how can I get to a point where I actually feel good and like I have it together in process and like, I have my own things down, and then I can like worry about and think about those kind of things in the future, you know. And it's I just think that that's interesting because I feel like it that happens so often where people don't always know the right questions to ask, or like they don't really know. Not even just that, but it's easy to not really understand like what someone's going through in a way. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I just thought that was interesting too because I feel like that is a natural response for people to. Ask that question because even like as you were telling me the story, like my first thought was, well, like can she have kids? You know what I mean? Because I I think naturally, especially when you are in a relationship and being, I mean, we still are young. You know what I mean? So it's like we might not be ready for it and thinking about. I mean, there's like times where I was like, no, I don't want them, and then there's times where I'm like, okay, maybe. So it's like that can be like heartbreaking and a letdown, and I'm I'm for anybody, you know, because like I said, that option is then taken from you in a sense. But I feel like. Two, it's nice that you focused on for yourself. Like, let me just get myself healthy in, like, every way possible because that is the most important. Like, you are the most important at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, so. I appreciate you saying all of that. It's, it's a lot of um, really good poignant points there, um, especially with, you know, one of the things that Marco and I talk about a lot is that we don't want to do anything reactionarily mm-hmm. in terms of family planning. You know, if we weren't already family planning, we're not going to, like, jump into trying to do egg donation or worry
0: too much about yeah
1: yeah like we want to make sure that we take care of the two of us first Mm -hmm. and it's raised a lot of questions like fundamental questions we haven't thought about yet which makes sense because we weren't family planning but the things like what does parenthood like really mean to us like what do we want that to look like and um yeah i think it's going back to sort of like the subject of guilt mm-hmm. I felt so much guilt like during this yeah. process and I couldn't like really put a finger on on why or what that was about but I was reading a, a study about ovarian insufficiency and I, there was a, the person who wrote the article was saying that you know you needed you need to focus on like these patients like they grieve from like the loss of dreams and their mm-hmm. expectations for the future and that resonated so much because I was like I realized I was struggling with guilt because I felt like do I feel like I can am I allowed to grieve when I'm not sure if I was even ready or if that was what we were going to do like is it even okay for me to feel like the heavy weight of an infertility journey Mm -hmm. that you know when we weren't even trying and I realized you know I always just pictured us having kids in the future Mm -hmm. even if it's not tangible right now right and that you know, when I thought of it that way and I thought of like, what if it was my friend asked me about that? I would be like, of course that's super valid. And you, you know, you're more than worthy of feeling that grief and like processing it and letting it go. And, um, thinking, being able to think about it in that sense or Mm. putting myself in the position of somebody else and, and trying to think about you know the woman and not just like their capacity for fertility oh my primary care provider I love him so much (laughs) he sat down with me and he was like do you know your worth outside Mm -hmm. of being able to reproduce and I was just crying so I do because thankfully my husband is fantastic and he's such a great support and you know I've never had to even think about um if being infertile would affect our relationship thankfully which is like something I'm so grateful for absolutely yeah but the when he sat down and he was just so stern about it like mm-hmm. do you know your worth has yeah. anyone told you that, you know, you're still worthy of all the love and the care and the attention uh-huh. you receive, even if you can't ovulate uh-huh. or have no eggs? And I was just crying. And I think that's he, so sweet. I think he thought, you know, cause I was crying that like, maybe I hadn't heard that, but it was right. just, it was so sweet it that he was, was saying yeah, that's, all it's that. Important. It was like aggressive loving. I almost felt mm-hmm. like he was shaking me by the shoulder. Do you know you're right. worthy of love? Yes. I'm like, I do. Thank oh you so much God. for saying that. And, um, thankfully I've had, most of my doctors have said that and, you know, my attending when he was doing my sauna histography and I was all on those the really comfortable loopy drugs. He was, you know, making sure, is your partner good support? Is your husband giving you the support you need? Does mm-hmm. he know that, Um, you know, like women are everything and right. And yeah, all this stuff, like the woman's the backbone of the household. He's saying all this really empowering stuff. I'm saying, uh-huh. like,
0: yeah, thank you. Mark. It goes great.
1: Thank goodness. I mean, yeah.
0: Well, it's am, important to have you know support in, in every aspect too, even from your doctors. Oh yeah. Um, because those are gonna be the people that make you feel like feel like safe yeah. in the answers that they give and and with the help because that's who you're relying on at the end of the day, is like oh definitely. You know, so
1: yeah. It's um the weight of an infertility journey has been like a super heavy one and it makes me just like really sympathize with women who have to experience you know, deciding to start their family Mm -hmm. and then finding out. I'm like, for us, I don't think we'll ever really struggle with, um, like jealousy because we know what we have to do going into it. Right. For us, we don't really have anything to compare to. Mm -hmm. We won't ever have to really deal with, um, comparing our own timeline to like our friends who might be family planning at the same time, because, we already know like we'll be brewing babies in a witch's cauldron mm-hmm. somewhere instead of yeah. you know doing things differently <laughs> like it's a very like mechanical and intentional timeline if we uh-huh. decide to have kids
0: and I but think but I always really feel like in a way too you're you're gonna be used to that and ready for it yeah because of even how the testing and stuff like that was laid out it's, it'll just be kind of like the next step in the process when you're ready for that and when you're there yeah. So it's almost nice because it's like you're prepared For all of the steps up into that
1: yeah i totally agree it takes um you know it it does take a big a big burden off of our shoulders with that and um yeah it's 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 so interesting i remember the week of thanksgiving i was just so like sad and listening back to my audio notes too it was just so sad and even with all of the different um advantages that we have like we just said you know we know exactly what to do moving forward and it just makes me think oh gosh women who deal with infertility and I just like my heart goes out to them and mm-hmm. sometimes that does affect like the relationship someone has with their partner if it's unexpected like I yeah. know that can really wear in a relationship and I'm just so grateful that thankfully for me and Marco for that's sure. not adding to the already stressful uh- <laughs> yeah definitely not yeah Do you have any other questions you want me to elaborate on? You hit everything. Dude, I'm so verbose. It's crazy. Like, you are (laughs)
0: spot on. You did such a great job. Like, I feel like it was so informative. And like I said, I feel like, too, there's always people out there, even though the percent is so small. So I feel like that's why it's always so important to talk about things like this and- and yeah, you, you literally did incredible. Thank so, you. So great job. Thank you so much. Of I course, really appreciate all
1: having us. It's of course. Really Thank you so much
0: for coming on. Like I said, I, I really can't stress it up. It was so informative. Like even the fact that you brought your labs and you were so – like you explained everything so well. So seriously <laughs> amazing. You. Great no, job. I really
1: appreciate that. I'm hoping that um, – You know, people who listen to it, there's so many different kinds of reproductive health issues yeah, that – that too. Right. I just, you know, hope that people who listen can just know that it's – it doesn't really matter what kind there is, like mm-hmm. – it's such a big community of people who right. struggle
0: so yeah for <laughs> sure together for and sure. health issues in general like I just feel like even if it's like no matter what issues you're having I feel like it's, it's always the same kind of routine of like with these tests and not mm-hmm. really necessarily having answers and then it takes forever to get them and it's just I think so so many people can probably relate to just the process on its own yeah. of of all of that which is just a total pain but I feel like once you kind of get through it and you have some of the answers and clarity it's like then you can kind of start on your path of like a new way of living and like adjusting to that so
1: yeah definitely
0: but yeah no but thank you you did so good seriously so much of course of course great job